Good morning. Good to see you here today. So glad that you're with us this morning. Take your Bible, if you would. Turn with me to Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse number 20. Luke 17, verse 20. Whenever something climatic occurs in our world, whether it's the Persian Gulf War 1990 or the September 11th terrorist attack in 2001, we hear the question, do you think this could be the beginning of the end times? The subject of end times or eschatology, if you want to be technical, has always been an area of fascination. We don't want to fear the end of time as some people do. It's not something that uh, I want to worry about. It's not something that I stay up late at night worrying about it either. Uh, Neither do I read and study about it constantly. What we need to ask ourselves is what, what is a balanced approach, Christian approach, to concern about the end times? And I want to answer that question this morning by examining three dangers with reference to the second coming that we find beginning in verse number 20. The first of those is don't try to make the second coming fit your preconceived ideas and expectations. Verse number 20 says, now when he was asked by the Pharisees, that is when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, He answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. The Pharisees saw themselves as the experts on the coming of the kingdom. And we should, in our day, be careful about thinking to ourselves that we have this whole prophecy thing figured out. In fact, Jesus says in these verses that we are not to trust anyone who says, I know when the kingdom is coming, or I know when the last days will be. In spite of the fact that the Bible says that no one, no man should know the day nor the hour, according to Matthew chapter 25 and verse 13, men are still trying to predict the very thing that it talks about. All down through the centuries, there have been those who have set dates for the return of Christ. Beginning as early as 8500, three Christian theologians predicted Christ would return in the year 500. John Wesley predicted 1836. William Miller set the date in 1844. The Jehovah Witness predicted in 1874 and in 1914. Joseph Smith predicted 1891. Herbert Armstrong of the Worldwide Church of God predicted 1935, 1943, 1972, and 1975. Edgar Wisnett, a retired NASA rocket engineer, wrote a book entitled 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1988. There were several uh, predictions of the year 2000, including the Y2K controversy about uh, all the computers are going to shut down and the world's going to end. Harold Camping, a radio broadcaster, predicted 1994 and again October the 21st, uh, 2011. 
One of the latest uh, was the blood moon prophecy promoted by the Christian ministers John Hagee and Mark Blitz. Blitz began predicting that the second coming of Christ would occur in the fall of 2015. And the idea of the blood moon, of course, comes from uh, the book of Joel, Joel chapter 2 and verse 31, that the blood moon would be an omen of the coming of the end times. Uh, Hagee picked up on, John, on Blitz's prediction. He stopped short of what Blitz did in predicting the exact time, but said that those were indeed omens of the soon return of the Lord. What all these predictions have in common is each of those dates was wrong. Many of them then recalculated and set a new date, which was also wrong. Over the last 2,000 years, lots of men have played neat little mathematical games uh, with Bible prophecy in an effort to determine the exact date of the Lord's return. This date setting has alarmed Christians and it has caused the cause of Christ to be made to look foolish among unbelievers. Jesus plainly and repeatedly told his disciples, no man knows the day or the hour of his return. Well, as I said, some have tried to rationalize their date setting by saying, yes, the Bible doesn't so the say the day nor the hour, but it doesn't say we cannot know the week or the month or the year. Well, very little critical thought is needed to see through that kind of rationalization. They missed the point that Jesus wants us to focus less on the when and the more on being ready. All down through the years, at every climatic event, people have been asking, is this the beginning of Armageddon? Men have asked that at the outbreak of World War II. They ask it at the outbreak of World War II. But Jesus wants us to see that knowing the exact date is not important, but being ready is. J.C. Riles wrote in the 1800s, the vast majority of men are utterly deceived in their expectations with regard to the kingdom of God. They're waiting for signs that will never appear. They're looking for indications which they will never discover. There is some question as to the meaning of Jesus' words that we see there in verse 21 when he says, and the kingdom of God is within you. One thing that we can be sure of is that Jesus is not telling these unbelieving Pharisees that they have the kingdom of God in their hearts. The Greek word translated within here can also be translated among or in the midst of. Jesus is saying, the kingdom is here in your very midst in the person of the king and you will not see it. The irony here was huge because they, the Pharisees, were arrogantly and unknowingly asking the king when the kingdom will come. The Pharisees thought that their position as Religious experts assured them that they knew the when and the where of the appearance of the kingdom of God. But because they were trying to make the coming of Jesus fit their preconceived notions and expectations, they were missing out on the greatest thing that had ever happened in the history of the world. So we have the warning, don't try to make the second coming fit your preconceived ideas and expectations. Secondly, 
Don't be obsessed by end times thought and, thought and study. He says in verse 22, then he said to his disciples, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the son of man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here and look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Having answered the Pharisees, Jesus now turns to his disciples and he instructs them not, not to be obsessed with his return, so much so that they don't do anything else but try to figure out and track down the time of his return. Now, we cannot deny that many Christians seem to be obsessed by prophecy. It's possible to spend a lot of time fretting and concerned about the future and how it will all end. But today is where God is concerned. Today is where he wants to meet with you and he wants to provide for you. Don't misunderstand me. There's nothing wrong with seeking to understand the general characteristics of the last days predicted by the prophetic scriptures. But we are not to be obsessed by such thought and study. And then third, don't allow worldly concerns to, to dim your desire for the Lord's return. He uses a couple of examples, and first of all, there is the example of Noah, beginning in verse 26 and going through verse 27. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Have you ever stopped to consider... Why Noah's neighbors were so hard to convince? Well, the indifferent attitude of the people of Noah's day is emphatically expressed by the use of four Greek verbs without any connection. A literal translation would read, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, and they were given in marriage. Those things were not necessarily evil. They were just too busy eating and drinking and going about the normal functions of their life, conducting business. It was not their sin, as great as that sin was, that condemned them. It was their indifference. They were just too busy to think about the fact of impending judgment. The point is that when we live our lives for the things of the world, we lose the life that God intends for us to live. For 120 years, as Noah built the ark, he warned the people of the coming of God's judgment. And yet the indifference of the people as a whole continued until the very day that Noah entered into the ark with his family. He also uses the example of Lot and his wife. The attitude of the world in Lot's day was the same as it was in Noah's day. Likewise, verse 28, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. Again, the, the use of the imperfect here 
emphasizes that they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. And all of those activities stress a preoccupation and indifference of these people. Yet they are not much different than we are today. We also can be so preoccupied with the concerns of this life that we are shallow and complacent and comfortable and lost. Jesus tells his disciples that he is coming again and the resulting judgment will be selective and it will be final. Verse 29 says, but on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be in the day that when the Son of Man is revealed. The word translated revealed means to uncover or to unveil. But what Jesus reveals is not intended for us to be used to make up a chart or for us to to have some kind of mathematical analysis of when he's coming, but rather it is for us to prepare our hearts. Before we leave this section, I think it's worthy to note that in both cases, both that of Lot and Noah, the scriptures reveal that judgment did not begin until God's people were safe. Verse 31 tells us that his judgment is to be sudden and climatic. It says, in that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not go down to take them away. And likewise, the one in the field, let him not turn back. To underscore how total and swift this judgment will be, Jesus notes that people will not have time to grab up the things in their homes to take with them as they flee. Nor will the workers in the field have time to go home to reclaim their positions. But where there will be no time to retrace their steps, those who live for eternity will be ready to drop everything to welcome his coming. In verse 32, the believer is cautioned, remember Lot's wife. Even Lot's wife was consumed with the life that she led in Sodom. So much so that in spite of being warned by the angels to not turn and look back, very clear instructions given in Genesis 19:17: do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley, escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Maybe Lot's wife just couldn't imagine what life would be without the things that she was leaving behind. And she looks back with one lingering look. And that one lingering look cost her heavily, according to Genesis 20, 19, 26. And but his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Her destruction was not so much because of where she looked, but because of what she loved. I don't know... <clears throat> that it is too much different for us today, for there are many professed Christians today who, see, who would see the Lord's return as a terrible interruption to their plans. Jesus states the general principle in verse 33. He says, and whosoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whosoever loses his life will preserve it. 
According to the illustration beginning in verse 34, in all of outward appearances, two people can be doing the same thing, working together, living together, and yet have a much different outcome. But one will be taken away and one will remain. As I tell you in that night, there will be two men in one bed and one will be taken and one, another left. And two women will be grinding together and one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field and the one will be taken and the other left. And he answered and said to them, where is the Lord? And so he said to them, wherever the body is, there the eagles will gather together. People will be separated. Some will gain everlasting life and others judgment. Warren Winsby in his, in his commentary says that the verb taken in verses 34 and 36 do not mean taken to heaven, but taken away in judgment. It should remember, be remembered that Jesus is not talking about the rapture of the believer where the believer is taken and the unbeliever is left, but rather he is talking about the second coming of Christ where the unbeliever is taken and the believer is left. The point of verses 34 through verse 36 seemed to be that no matter how close two people are, either emotionally or physically, they may be separated by the judgment. Two people may be sleeping in the same bed and one be taken, the other left. Two people will be working at the same job. Even friends, like the two women grinding grain together, but one will escape judgment and the other will not. But there is no mistake, for the separation will be made by God. Outward appearances will count for nothing, but God can judge our hearts. There are three things that these scriptures tell us that we can know for sure about the second coming of the Lord. First of all, that his coming will be unmistakable. You don't have to worry about that you'll miss it, that you won't know what's going on. The Bible says in verses 22 through verse 25 that his second coming will be unmistakable. It also tells us that his coming will be unexpected. No matter what charts you might draw together, no matter what mathematical uh, calculations you may have drawn together to, to know when the Lord's coming is, they're wrong. That it will be unexpected. And third, his coming will be inescapable. It's not something that you're going to be able to put off to later. It's not that, that you'll be able to look and say, well, I, it's not convenient for me right now. But rather that it's something that is inescapable. Jesus is coming back. Make no mistakes about it. And whether you believe it or not, or whether you're ready or not, he's coming. For those that know him, there is nothing to fear. For those who know that they do not know him, there is every reason to prepare. The moments that remain should motivate the church to reach the lost and very frightened world. What we must remember is that every moment until the Lord returns is an opportunity to be an instrument to change the destiny of someone that does not know Jesus personally. In his commentary on Romans, Dr. Donald Grayhouse Barnhouse told a story of a man he went to visit in a Philadelphia hospital. 
Dr. Byrne heard that the man was dying and he, since he knew the man was not a Christian, he wanted to give him one last chance to hear the gospel. But even on his deathbed, this man showed so little concern for his eternal destiny that Dr. Barnhouse decided that the situation called for some drastic action. He asked the man then if he could stay with him in his room through the night. When the man asked why, why do you want to stay with me? Dr. Barnhouse pulled up a chair and he said, because I've never seen a man die without Christ. Suddenly the man realized he was not nearly as ready to die as he thought he was. And by the time their conversation was over, he prayed to receive Christ as his Savior. What should we know? This we should know. We need to know and know for sure that we have accepted Jesus as our personal Savior. We need to know that we are prepared for his return. Because Jesus wants us to know that we're ready. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for every warning that you give us. Recognition that we need to have our hearts and our lives prepared. That we may not have the opportunity, either because of our own death or because of your coming, we may not have the opportunity to make a last-minute decision. We have this time. We have this opportunity. We have this day. This day you have given us that we can change the direction of our lives. This day that we can give our hearts and lives to you. This day then we can accept the payment that's been made for our sins on the cross of Calvary by Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, if there's one here today, under the sound of my voice that has never made that decision, then Lord, I pray you'd speak to their hearts. Help them to, to realize they're no different than the rest of us, that we're all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God and that our sins separate between us and the Holy God. But that Jesus came, he lived a, a sin-free life, and he died in our place so that he might bear the penalty of our sin. And all we must do is accept his payment on our behalf. For those of us who know we're saved, we also need to know we're ready. We need to know that we are living our lives in a fashion that would be pleasing to you. That we would be ready for you to step into our lives at any moment. Without any time for us to have to step back and, and change things and maneuver our lives so that they might be acceptable to you. Father, we ask that you speak to our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.